0: Hello, and welcome to episode 37 of the Karma Sense Foodcast. I'm Davey H., and this is the Lose Weight Slow episode. Thanks for joining us here on episode 37 of the Foodcast on this, the first annual National Schlumpia Day. May all your Schlumpia dreams come true. Today we talk about the phenomenon of weight loss and the one and only true strategy for long-term achievement of weight loss. We meet my friend and fellow health coach, Sharon Lewis, who discusses her strategy and the effort it takes. There's no easy way, but it's worth it if you need to, and if you don't need to, you'll learn why you need to be supportive of those who do. But first, rant. So, I was a fat kid growing up. In my elementary school class, I was the fat kid. My mom always struggled with her weight and died recently due to her obesity. I don't know a lot about my family past my grandparents, but my conclusion as a youth was that genes were working against me. It's true, even at 10 years old, I was a health and wellness geek. One day, when I was about 13, thanks to some education, teenage stubbornness, and the accompanying hormones that motivated me to upgrade my relationship with girls, I decided to fight my genes and shed the pounds. Over the course of the next few months, like a caterpillar metamorphosizing into a graceful butterfly, I grew several inches in height, lost about 20 pounds, and underwent my own conversion from husky, awkward, prepubescent geek, to tall, lithe, awkward, pubescent geek. You can't change everything overnight, and when it comes to awkward and geek, the evidence shows that I'll never change that. My son Sam, who you met in episode 22 of the Foodcast, Family Table had a similar experience with the exception of the awkward and geek part, WWE fanboyness notwithstanding. And yes, Sam, I don't have explicit permission to talk about you in this episode, but it's all on tape. Any idea about uh, what your peak weight was? 225. 225. And I'm about 5'9", 5'10", right now. I was probably a little shorter back then. 225. And you were at, what, 14? I was 225 my started my senior year in high school. You said that you were uh, you peaked at 225 up to about your senior year of high school. Within the senior year of high school, you went through a, a major transformation.
1: Is that what we're calling
0: it? Yeah, we are. We are, because you went down from your peak at 225 to what? Uh, 147 the day I left for college. And the good thing about playing that recording is that the Family Table episode of the Foodcast is such a listener favorite that maybe including it'll give this episode the Sam Hellman bump. The point here is, you probably thought there wasn't one, is with the exception of my mom, I come from a family who with relative ease fought back the genetic programming that predisposes us to being overweight and are in fact below the average weights for our height. And if we can do it, why can't everyone? And I have to admit, despite now being in a profession that demands compassion and empathy, I couldn't stop thinking to myself that people who became and remain obese lack willpower. That they're just lazy. That the ever-increasing population of obesity is the result of nothing more than weakness. But is it? Why is obesity such a growing problem throughout the world? Well, it all starts with an unprecedented access to cheap, empty calories. Processed foods that stimulate thousands of years of genetic programming that tells us that whatever salty, high-calorie, fat-laden food we just ate will help us survive the elements. So, eat more of it. These same foods provide none of the nutrition that's supposed to accompany those calories, and that only makes us hungrier for more. Okay, so all the elements needed to create addiction are there, access and supportive physiological processes being just two of them. But not everybody smokes cigarettes or becomes an alcoholic, and food isn't even a controlled substance. So it must be the people and not the food. Well, here's the next problem. Weight gain tends to be gradual people don't always notice its extent as it happens. Often people write it off as just part of being older, but eventually it hits them that they're no longer feeling good about themselves and they try to do something about the increased weight. Here's where physiology wins again. Your body treats any attempts to lose weight as an attempt to kill yourself through starvation and does all it can to keep you at the current weight. Sometimes this phenomenon develops into something called metabolic syndrome. Metabolic syndrome is a clustering of any three of the following conditions. Abdominal obesity, high blood pressure, high blood sugar, high serum triglycerides, and low HDL cholesterol. Some of these conditions cause direct hormonal responses that either make a person feel hungry or desensitize that person's ability to feel satiated, satisfied, full. Others, through inflammation and additional weight gain, add indirect physiological conditions that increase craving and hunger. For example, sleep apnea, a condition in which a sleeping person's airways closes, causes that person to suffocate in mid-sleep cycle, at which point he or she awakens, resulting in a poor night's sleep, and a poor night's sleep increases cravings for crap. According to a UC Berkeley study, Go Bong hits, sleep-deprived brains suppress the complex decision-making of the brain's frontal lobe and increases activity in deeper brain centers that responds to rewards and as a result, participants in the study favored unhealthy snacks and junk foods when they were sleep-deprived. Really, it had nothing to do with the bong hits. Does this mean things are hopeless for people struggling with their weight? No. The fad diet brigade and mass media are replete with examples of morbidly obese people shedding the pounds. I mean replete. It's pleated, and then pleated again. Television franchises are wholly focused on the phenomenon of successful weight loss oh wait, that's not right. Shows like The Biggest Loser actually make my point. As a National Institute of Health study found, motto, sorry, adherence to basic science is not part of the fiscal year 2018 budget. Anyway, as that study found, over 90% of Biggest Loser participants gain back all their weight. But even with that, there's hope. It's just not the sexy stuff that television shows are made of. Because the way to lose weight isn't to lose weight fast, it's to lose weight slow. Lee. Sorry, saying slow is catchier, but my inner Abe Hellman absolutely required that I use the adverb form. Losing weight slowly, while ensuring an extra long story arc for a TV program, doesn't make for great ratings. Bob, with your loss of 10 pounds over the course of the season, you're the biggest loser. Not all that compelling. But a morbidly obese person losing just 10 pounds can shave significant points off blood pressure and reduce wear and tear on the body. Even if there's 100 or more pounds left to lose to be at a healthy weight. There are a million ways to lose weight slowly. My assistance is one of them. Another option is the lazy way out. Bariatric surgery. Bariatric surgery is the name for any number of procedures that physically alter the digestive system either through stomach reduction or some other change to one's gastrointestinal plumbing. Bariatric surgery resets your physiology, so it no longer fights to get back to the old weight. Spend the night in a hospital, and boom, it's smooth sailing from there. Or is it? Let's talk to someone who knows. Sharon, thank you very much for being here today.
1: Thank you for having me, Dave.
0: Why don't we start off with you giving some background about yourself?
1: I'm a certified integrative health coach, I'm also an executive in the pharmaceutical industry and I also have learned recently to embrace a healthy lifestyle.
0: So you've learned to embrace a healthy lifestyle, the implicating being that it's a recent development, so uh, what's different about your lifestyle now and what it was like before?
1: Up until about three and a half years ago, I spent a lifetime of being somewhere between overweight and morbidly obese, and I would oscillate between active lifestyle, sedentary lifestyle, and everything in between, and once I made a lifestyle change, I've really embraced more of a healthy mindset, and a little bit more mindfulness, and certainly a more active way in which i live my life now
0: just for perspective for the listeners you say morbidly obese do you mind sharing exactly what that means
1: in my case i really need to get off a hundred and some odd pounds and depending on which physicians you speak to will depend on how they categorize people but if you have a very high bmi then you're typically put in the obese or morbidly obese category and sadly I fit into the morbidly obese category for
0: much of my life. Some people might not have a perspective of exactly what 100 pounds means. You put photographs on your website that show before and after that, I think, provides that perspective, and I'll put a link to that on the show notes.
1: Yeah, I'd say that I pretty much had lost the equivalent of a person. Uh, that probably puts it in a perspective.
0: Yeah, I've only seen you after you've had this healthier lifestyle experience, and you are a petite woman. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that that doesn't equate for me. Petite and 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 me just don't seem to resonate. I've heard that phrase before, and it still is something I. Have a hard time understanding and equating
0: without you necessarily having to to share something that ladies don't generally like to to share, how long had had you been struggling with your weight?
1: My entire life, even I'd say maybe not on the day I was born, but even as a toddler, um in the pictures that I see, I was definitely chunky as a young child, I was always overweight and teased. as a young adult, that continued. And the only time I ever very briefly got to something closer towards a normal size was after extensive exercise and extreme calorie deficit. And I'd say that it's really been a lifetime, decades
0: of, of that battle. With that struggle, you also happen to be navigating around a highly stressful professional career, even before you became pharmaceutical executive. Would you mind sharing a little bit about what you had been doing and and your career path?
1: My entire career has really been a dance between the life sciences industry and the high-tech industry, and I've held a series of executive-level roles. I'd say experience just because of being obese. I've experienced a lot of... Negative stigmatisms, people assuming that even if you get to a certain level, you're not maybe as organized as they would expect or think. And it's just, it's all a lot of, I'd say, misperceptions and preconceived notions, a lot of discrimination. And I'd say a certain amount of harassment over the course of my career. And yet through it all, I continued to, I'd say, kind of pave away way somehow for me to at least have a career. But it has never been easy. And I'd say really the best part of my career has really been since I've lost weight and been working on maintaining that or, or staying as close to that weight loss as I
0: can. And that's really been rather liberating. What comes to mind as far as the kind of discrimination or harassment that uh, you experience? This is certainly
1: not pertinent to where I am currently working, right. but being passed over for promotions or not getting the same level of pay as other peers, finding myself in situations or positions that were maybe not optimal, I'd say being diminished And I'd say not always treated with respect. As I look out over my prior experiences in careers or even jobs, I'd often be wondering how people could be so cruel to another person when the only difference was weight. Certainly not for lack of being highly educated and extremely skilled. So I'm very grateful for where I am today. Love where I work, love what I do, love the people I work with.
0: You struggled with this your entire life. It impacted your career. It impacted your personal life. What kind of things did you try to actually change the situation?
1: Well, if you're talking about changing the situations in terms of how people were treating me, that I, I would have to say there were not a lot of things you could do about that in terms of trying to change the situation in terms of weight. That was plentiful. (laughs) That was any mixture of a gazillion diet programs. I could probably fill you in on all of those, as well as crazy exercise plans. And I'd say that those were probably the things that I tried most frequently as I really was a firm believer you can't change other people's behaviors and the way in which they view other individuals But I always tried to change me, and that's really what I focused on.
0: You tried everything, but it was difficult to make the real change that you wanted to make. And I cheat a little bit because we've spoken about this before. You actually had metabolic syndrome, which was fighting to keep your body at the weight it had become accustomed to.
1: Precisely. Having gone undiagnosed with metabolic syndrome wasn't helpful. I was happy to know that there was something that was really wrong with me because every time that I would attempt and fail at diet and exercise change, the impact that would have not just on weight but also on my psyche was not helpful. I could pretty much write a book about all the diet programs I was on and most people that have metabolic syndrome would say the same thing. I tried everything there possibly was available. And calorie restriction to 300 a day at different points in my life, including when I was in high school. So there were a lot of experiences and with major diet programs and all different supplements that never really resulted in any kind of long term sustainable
0: weight. Do you mind sharing, just in your own words, what metabolic syndrome is? It's
1: a situation where your metabolism is fighting to keep all of the fat and the calories that you are consuming in your body. So it's very difficult to lose weight and take the weight off. It really typically results in and requires someone to undergo some pretty major interventions in order for that to be
0: turned around. And you took on one of those major interventions.
1: I did. I had this crazy thought after failing at every every different diet program there was, and and there was one day when I was I was driving home from a place I was working, and I really was in a very bad place, just negatively. All the way around, and I was driving home saying, "You know, if you keep on doing the same thing over and over again, you can't expect to get any different results." There's something really wrong here, and I said, "You know what? This is going to sound drastic." And I'm talking to my in my head and out loud in my car. I'm like, "I'm going to do something drastically different." I'm just going for some kind of bariatric surgery. So I, I signed up, or so I thought, for an informational discussion that was supposed to be held at a local hospital. And I drive my partner with me and we went there and there was no informational session. So I was so busy with my workload at the time. I couldn't get to any other kind of informational session for about six months. And what I finally did was instead of going to a group session, I actually just called up a surgeon's office that was a center of excellence for bariatric surgery and asked for a consult. I went in for a consult And told them I wanted to go for bariatric surgery. And I had already decided what kind I wanted. And I was told I really wasn't a very good candidate for that. But gee, they had a great idea. And I was told that I'd be a fantastic candidate for the gastric sleeve surgery. And I had never heard of that before. So I asked a few questions. And I just said, where can I sign up? I didn't even discuss it with anybody. I didn't even do any immediate research between the two minutes that I was talking to the surgeon and the two minutes in which I blurted out, sign me up. (laughs) I just said I knew I had to do this, and that was that. And I left with a whole bunch of paperwork, went home and did all the Internet research I could. And then started going through the process to become approved, so that I would have insurance coverage to take care of that. Okay. And that was the beginning of my new journey.
0: What is the gastric sleeve, and why it appeal to you? Basically, it removes about eighty five percent
1: of the size of a normal stomach, so it leaves your stomach with about a small, the size of a small banana. It removes the hormone that triggers hunger. And also, they've had studies done that, interestingly enough, also suppresses migraines, which I used to get three times a year. So the fact that it reduces and restricts the amount of food you can consume was appealing to me. The thought of never having a migraine, although three times a year is no big deal. I was thrilled with that thought. And I said, you know what? If I don't feel hunger, how could that be beat? (laughs) so those were the things that were enticing and then I think the final thing was the fact that unlike some of the other bariatric procedures this still allows you to absorb vitamins and minerals normally so there would be very little reason for any kind of malnutrition or any kind of need for major vitamin supplements
0: and you said you needed to get prepared for that surgery what kind of things did you have to do to get ready
1: they have you undergo a battery of tests basically every part of your body and also psychological tests to see if you're emotionally ready for that kind of transformation but how to go for pulmonary testing cardiac testing colonoscopy was required they also check your veins to make sure you have no signs of blood clots there were just a litany of tests and i would have to say that It probably took three to four months to undergo all those procedures, some of which are done in the hospital. The rest are done at different specialist offices. And all of those test results are then reviewed by the surgeon and then forwarded along to whatever insurance one might have for them to make a decision and determination of medical necessity. I also had multiple physicians write letters on my behalf indicating why I would have been a good candidate to have this procedure so I was really fortunate to have a lot of medical support as
0: well. A lot of people who undergo bariatric surgery also are told that they're going to have to lose weight even before the surgery takes place. Did you mm-hmm. have to do that?
1: No I was under the care of the dietitian at the surgeon's office and what they wanted me to do for the really was about a four-month period leading up to it, was to really work with her to just maintain the diet program I was on and to really focus on trying out for size, a variety of different protein drinks and flavored waters that would be required soon after the surgery or actually immediately after the surgery. Uh So they were really more prepping me for post-surgery, whereas others that I know of that have undergone the same kind of procedure have needed to lose a certain amount of weight before they could even be operated on. So I think the goal for the surgeon is to ensure that there's as little fatty excess tissue around the liver so they can more clearly get to your stomach to do the surgery properly.
0: What risks did they ask you to consider? Well, death. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a risky surgery. It's it's why yeah. It's another reason why they have you going through all those different tests to avoid any complications in relation to it.
1: Yeah, I selected a surgeon who started a bariatric center of excellence program in two different major hospital organizations, one of the leaders in the field, and has conducted thousands and thousands of surgeries. While death or fatality is very remote, you could end up with blood clots. One of the major things you could suffer from after the surgery, you could end up back in the hospital with severe dehydration. So there are a lot of different complications that any surgical procedure comes with, but I'd say blood clots, dehydration, certainly death. Um, But for me, at that point, life wasn't even worth living anymore, Mm. in my old old persona. So I said, sign me up, I don't care what the risk is, I just want to go. And there wasn't a major risk, it was just that they have to prepare you for surgery like any other
0: surgical procedure. Right. So what was the actual procedure like?
1: I don't remember I was under, but um, I can tell you that the the one thing that surprised me just before the surgery was about to start, the surgeon came in, said, you know, we're all set. And he did say that once they brought me in on the bed, that what they would do then is they would strap me down and then they would actually put my feet on blocks and actually have me standing in a standing position throughout the surgery. And the reason for that is to have the stomach actually hang down so they can actually do a much better precise cut. And as soon as I was informed of how they were doing that, that's when I freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, a, would say, a 10-minute freak out because then I was under and then I came to and all of it was behind me, if
0: you will. Okay, so you were out during the surgery. What was recovery like?
1: normally patients are in and out with just one overnight stay. I stayed two nights. And the reason for that is I have a very difficult time handling anesthesia. And if you can't hold down any amount of fluid, they can't release you. And I had my normal reaction to anesthesia, which was expected. It's hereditary and nothing that could be done about it so I was there for two nights until I could actually hold anything any fluid down the interesting thing was that after surgery and once all of that subsided the change in terms of what I could actually consume was dramatic I could barely sip a little bit of water at a time and get that into my stomach
0: Uh
1: I had no idea of how tight a constriction and restriction was going to ultimately be the outcome of this kind of surgery. And that was the beginning of my journey. I would have to say Uh was that was remarkable, like a total switch. I used to be able to, you know, right after surgery, I'd say two days later when I was at least able to leave the hospital a little tiny sip of water was about all I could handle, whereas before, like any other person, you could guzzle water. All right. So that was a total transformation.
0: So how long would you say was between the time when you were post-surgery recovery and actually living what you would call Sharon's new normal life?
1: I'd say really within a week. And the reason I say that is after the surgery, regardless of how much I couldn't hold down, they immediately have you up and walking. Exercise is a really important part of the recovery for that particular kind of procedure. I started to feel really pretty good within a week in terms of being up and about and walking. And every single day I would walk and walk a little further and a little further. And if it meant walking from the house to getting the mail, the next day it was walk twice that and then three times that. In terms of from a food standpoint, the newer normal in terms of being able to consume all different kinds of food and not have difficulty digesting it, that was more like a six-month process.
0: Mm -hmm. A lot of people focus on the actual physical aspect of getting the bariatric surgery, some kind of stomach reduction. Of course, having that surgery doesn't make you lose the weight. There's a lot of work after it. The real process is after the surgery is done.
1: Correct. And actually, I'd say the real work is probably a year after
0: the surgery is done. Uh
1: People would ask me how I lost the weight. And it was a combination of tools. The surgery was certainly one tool. Having a registered dietitian as part of the team from the surgeon's office was absolutely required. Having an exercise physiologist who actually customize my exercise programs was a big part of it. A fantastic support system was also a big part of it. And then I think the major piece was mindfulness.
0: So you have a whole team of support people that are focused on your diet increasing your physical activity, making sure that mentally you're all in, uh, doing what you need to do to make sure the surgery is successful. It's a lot of work. It's where most bariatric surgeries fail. And then there was your own work on mindfulness. What's your current diet like?
1: I would say that it's mostly a low-carb, high-protein diet. Breakfast could be any combination of one of the following. It could be a protein shake. It could be a protein bar, but more often than not, I have an egg, turkey bacon, low-fat cheese, or a combination thereof, along with some raw vegetables, cooked vegetables, or some fresh fruit. That's probably my favorite, or celery with lox and cream cheese rather than a bagel lox and cream cheese. Lunch is typically vegetables and protein with a little bit of fruit, and then dinner is pretty much the same, and my snacks are largely low-fat Greek yogurts, fresh vegetables and fresh fruits, and sometimes nuts.
0: Minimally processed, making sure that you're getting all your macros, your protein, your carbohydrates, your healthy fats. Your meals are spread out through the day, and they're relatively small portions. Correct.
1: If we go out for any kind of meals, it's the equivalent of two to three for me. So it's easy for me to have leftovers or to share a meal with somebody. But Yeah, I would say that that sums it up. I don't have as many beans one might expect because it is slightly higher in carbs. I don't have as many nuts as I would, I'd say, like because they're a little higher in fat. But I would say more of a high-protein, low-carb, low-processed food diet is really what I'm following.
0: How do you find you tolerate fiber? Just because you mentioned beans, you mentioned nuts.
1: Yeah, of fact, fiber is actually pretty critical. High fiber diet, though, is hard to get in when you have had to sleep mm-hmm. because the only way to really get a lot of fiber in are some of the higher fiber fruits, which also happen to be higher in fiber and higher in carbs, such as pears or apples. I do take, when needed, gummy fiber supplements. And that's, it depends on how much fiber I've gotten in for a day. Uh, yeah, that's probably the biggest challenge, really, is getting in enough fiber with a smaller container,
0: so to speak. How does the mindfulness actually help you?
1: It helps me to pay a little bit more attention to how I'm feeling. And also, it helps me to remain calm and balanced, which then, in turn, assists me in focusing on the foods I'm eating, how frequently I'm eating, what I'm ingesting. I'd say it just really keeps me kind of
0: centered. Are you craving things that you know you shouldn't be eating?
1: You know, it's interesting. I don't feel hunger, but I cannot tell you that if you don't see a food that you might not crave a food. So I would say the more mindfulness I practice, yes, the fewer cravings I would have. But those cravings are what my surgeon would consider to be head hunger. It's not real hunger. I specifically cannot still feel hunger or thirst,
0: right. and I
1: haven't been able to feel those sensations in surgery.
0: Would you say you miss having those feelings at all? Or are you no. You, no. You're okay no. With
1: it. I love the fact that I don't feel hunger and thirst, but the one caveat to that for anybody that might be listening and considering undergoing gastric sleeve surgery is because you can't feel the desire to eat or drink, It's very important to start to time yourself or set alarms so that you can remember to eat or drink. It's very easy to become dehydrated and thus end up in the hospital. So I started a practice very early on, thanks to my surgeon and his registered dietitian, to constantly be walking around with a large bottle of some kind of fluid. I drink a lot, and I don't mean drinking alcohol a lot. I drink (laughs) A lot of water, iced tea, decaffeinated coffee, some regular coffee-flavored drinks. But um, that's a very important part of follow-up because of that sensation going away. I'm just going to throw this brand out, that something that is like a crystal light, for instance. Mm-hmm. I would have to say the registered dietitian would recommend maybe one or two crystal lights in a water a day just to mix up the flavors. If all you're drinking all day long is water, it can be a little boring. The good news is you can still infuse your water with things like mint or fruit so you have the essence of another flavor, but sometimes you just need something that
0: doesn't taste like water. And you know, I'm not the slightest bit insulted that you just called me boring, by the way. (laughs) I didn't call you boring, but you know (laughs) what I'm saying. (laughs) Uh, Are you able to drink alcohol? Oh,
1: (laughs) I can maybe tolerate... About a uh, half of a um, shot glass uh-huh. of wine, and anything beyond that, I am drunk as a skunk.
0: Okay, I'll keep that in mind next time we're face to face. I so.
1: learned that the hard way. I was, I was at a conference a couple of years ago, and I hadn't had any alcohol in a, probably about a year and a half. And we we're at an event, and I had a nice glass of Merlot, which is my drink of choice. And I had about half the glass, and then I could not stand up. I couldn't walk. It was really embarrassing.
0: How else has your life changed? You
1: know, in very basic ways. So as an example, I still tend to park a little further away from the right side of a car so that I can actually fit in the driver's side of my car. I do that out of habit. I can now actually sit in a regular airplane seat without an airplane ext- airplane extender seatbelt. I can actually get into a ladies' room stall, which I could never do. I can actually go to the restroom on an airplane, which was nearly impossible. So on a six-hour flight or a 12-hour flight, that was a problem. So there are just some normal... Everyday things that people take for granted that I can now do that I couldn't do before.
0: And what are the things that you can do now that you really enjoy that you just couldn't do before?
1: Probably getting onto the floor and exercising, getting back up without any assistance. (laughs) You know, brisk walking. I have a rowing machine. I can do normal activities. I could do so many different things that I really was struggling with before or that I'd be able to do briefly if I would get on one of those crazy diets and lose a little bit of weight. But now really there's not a lot that's a struggle. It's, uh, it's even more fun shopping. That's a big deal. In what way? I'm actually helped. If I go into a store, I'm actually asked, how may I help you? Whereas in my lifetime past, I was ignored. Oh, wow. I, and, and the very same sales clerks in some of the retail stores, Don't realize that I was the very same person years ago that would come in now. And I recognize the person. They they treat me now like I'm a real person, whereas in years past, I was literally ignored and snubbed. So that's really remarkable to me.
0: These are all things that, as you said, they're very basic. They're seemingly very small things. They just all add up to a completely different lifestyle for you. It's
1: different in every way shape or form in how I'm treated, how I'm perceived, and then that turns into how I feel. It's been a total change and every day is still a change and every day is still a struggle.
0: That's how Sharon's lifestyle changed, but what about her health?
1: I went in being on eight prescription medicines. I'm on none. And you know, the other thing is is that before the surgery I had been diagnosed with asthma, hypertension, sleep apnea, and after the surgery, I had none of the above. I was on a million inhalers and rescue inhalers, and you name it, I was on it. And I was on medicine for hypertension, and all of that was caused by being morbidly obese and having metabolic syndrome. It's amazing what a simple surgical technique and a boatload of comprehensive care afterwards Did to turn it totally around. You know, just because one has undergone surgery, it's not a silver bullet. And I would have to say, maintenance on this is so much harder than losing the weight during that first year. They don't really properly prepare you for maintenance. That's
0: the bigger battle. How did you tackle that?
1: Same approach and leveraging my support system when I feel that I'm slipping and sliding. So that's when I'll reach out to my dietitian and my doctors and my exercise physiologist and ask for help. I'm trained in behavior modification, but like everybody else, it is a definite struggle. You can't undo something you experienced for over five decades, and you can't just turn a switch and say, oh, I had surgery. It's a magic bullet. It is
0: absolutely not. The other point I think you're making, which is there's really two sets of changes you need to make. You need to make the changes that help you lose the weight. But as you point out, maintenance is a completely different animal. And in order to make sure that the weight doesn't come back and that you remain healthy, you've got to make a change again.
1: It's very important. And for me personally, I do a fair amount of traveling. And what I find unravels my routine and my ability to remain mindful is when I undergo a major change in my environment. And that's when I typically will slip and slide a little bit. And then I have to really rein it back in. get back on track. The only positive is I know what I need to do and just takes a lot of mindful practice and a lot of determination to stay on course.
0: What advice do you have for other people who may be considering what you did?
1: For people that are considering undergoing the gastric sleeve or any kind of bariatric surgery, I think there's a couple of things to consider. Uh, One is to make sure that they search out a surgeon that has a center of excellence in bariatric surgery that's really critical they typically have a very comprehensive team that will help to ensure that they have the safe surgery and great outcomes but will work with them long term to ensure success secondly it's important to research what life is going to be like afterwards because there's no turning back this surgery is permanent it cannot be reversed it is a dramatic lifestyle change. It's something I would do over and over again. If I could, I'd probably go and have the surgery done every three years just to tune me up. (laughs) And then I think finally, if if anybody is really interested in speaking with somebody who's gone through this and is on the other side, you know, three and a half years out, anybody's welcome to reach out to me and I'd be happy to speak with them.
0: Okay. And I'll put contact information in the show notes, but uh, what is the best way to get in touch with you?
1: They can go to my website, Uh, waytothink.com and there's a contact form right there.
0: Okay well thank you Sharon. Now you gave me an assignment to help better appreciate the experience that you had. Do you mind sharing what that assignment was? And we'll find out about that assignment next. Do you mind sharing what that assignment was?
1: Sure. So my assignment was to take a brisk walk and practice some mindfulness and be aware of your surroundings and come back and say, describe what you saw. And if you happen to have an opportunity to take a picture or two of something that reminded you of what you experienced during your exploration, to, uh, to do so.
0: Okay. We flipped a virtual coin and decided that you were going to talk about your experience first. And so would you mind just sharing what comes to mind?
1: Sure. I went out on a brisk walk early this morning, and actually I I brisk walk every day. But I thought long and hard this morning as I was out very early that my walk this morning is a little bit of a contrast from my walks on other days during the week. So Monday through Thursday, I'm usually in the urban environment uh, that faces New York City, And my view is often of skyscrapers, New York City skyline, and I am assaulted with the smells of a mixture of coffee, salty air, bagels, and bacon every morning. So what occurred to me this morning on my walk was what a difference as I walked amongst nature in the community in which I live, and what a stark contrast that is to the other four business days of the week and as i was walking this morning i noticed purple rhododendrons i noticed one of my neighbors had no wildflowers planted this year as in every year past i saw a goldfinch that i haven't seen land anywhere here in the entire time i've been living here and it was totally quiet except the sound of chirping birds And I was meandering through our development and really enjoying soaking up nature before anybody was out in the morning. No sound of cars, no sound of airplanes, just the still of nature, the flowers and the birds. And I was just loving it.
0: So what kind of things do you do to make sure that you maintain beginner's mind in a a route that you've done before?
1: As I embark upon my mindfulness walk, I don't even know if I consciously have to think about anything now. I just am looking alertly all around me to see what is it that I haven't noticed before and to really take in the sights and the smells and the sounds in a way that's new and fresh for me that day. And that's exactly what I do. And it really makes me let everything else go. I don't think about, anything else except exactly where I am in that moment and the only thing that I would say that is a distraction but a good distraction is I pull out my phone so I can take some pictures to remind me of that moment so I can actually capture it and try to hold it preciously in my mind.
0: Is there anything that when you reflect back on this walk that you Want to make sure that you do differently next time?
1: I'd have to say for today, no. It was such a beautiful walk. I felt like I came back fully refreshed, recharged, and invigorated. And I would have to say that if that wasn't the case, then I would say there would be something different. But today's walk was absolutely perfect. The weather was great. The experience was great. And to come back feeling very calm and very aware of exactly how I was feeling during the moments of that walk was exactly what I had hoped for.
0: I'm glad you were able to take the successful mindful walk all in the name of my little podcast. I'm just teasing. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. I grilled you on your mindful walk. We're turning the tables now.
1: Okay. Okay. So, Dave... Tell me about your experiences as you took a mindful walk. Where did you go today?
0: So I did a walk that is very common for me. It's one which starts out through my neighborhood, which is kind of suburban mix of single family and townhomes. I worked my way to downtown Alexandria, which is kind of urban, certainly not like New York City or even West Orange. Work my way to the potomac river walked up the potomac river which then becomes kind of serene parkland and then cut back over and walk through not particularly nice but it's all part of the walk industrial commercial park buildings and because my mindfulness muscles are not as developed as yours when i go on a walk with the intention of it being a mindful walk and I know it's going to be a route that I've been through before. I actually end up giving myself assignments, just because that's how I roll, and pick some various things that I'll try and focus on and keep me centered. So those assignments will often have to do with finding colors, finding shapes, and listening to sounds. So the color I picked this time was white, and trying to identify, which is not one I would normally do, just items that are white that occur in nature. And what I found is that there's really very, very few things, even flowers, that are pure white. In fact, the thing that had the purest color of white was bird poop on a car. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So there there was that. And Mm -hmm. because when I was walking through the city, I was also focused on any kind of statuary or gargoyles that were looking like animals. And I encountered very few of those. It's just not part of Old Town Alexandria's architecture. I really need that kind of exercise to help keep me focused. Otherwise, monkey brain takes over.
1: How did you feel after your mindfulness walk?
0: I felt invigorated. It was uh, 90 degrees and very humid here as well. But I still felt invigorated. I felt relaxed. I felt like I could definitely focus on the work that I had for the rest of the day.
1: Hmm. Is there anything that you would do different on your next mindfulness brisk walk?
0: In taking yesterday's walk, I considered doing some new routes, but I thought that it would be a better indication if I tried to maintain mindfulness in again one that is now seeming rote. I think another thing that I can do to help me when I to stay mindful is While I can take the same route, I don't necessarily have to do it in the same direction. I could go the opposite way for a change. Gosh darn it. Um, (laughs) So uh, if I do that one again, I think I'm going to go through the nasty part of town first and see what happens when I get in the better parts in the back half of the walk.
1: There you go. (laughs) Well, I'm so glad that we both did the same activity but we each did it our way
0: and this is something that again helped you through your recovery uh, from having bariatric surgery both from the physical activity it introduced as well as helping keep you focused and centered and calm and at peace with yourself Absolutely. absolutely okay sharon well i really appreciate your taking the time to do this with me I know you've got other things backing up into all the time that we've taken, so I want to let you go. But again, uh, if people want to get in touch with you, learn about more about your experience, engage your coaching services to help them as well, uh, the information will be up on the show notes, and it's waytothink.com. Thank you
1: so much, Dave, for uh, having me today, and really appreciate it.
0: Sharon, who had a demanding career, she humbly never acknowledged that she worked in the famously misogynistic and unforgiving of flaws Silicon Valley, leading Yahoo's global operations at a time when Yahoo was still relevant. Sharon, who after years of adjusting her lifestyle to conform to a society lacking in empathy. Sharon, who tried everything to lose weight, ultimately acknowledged that she needed a major intervention to achieve her vision for optimal health. Anyone who thinks this decision to undergo risky surgery is easy or lazy clearly never had to make it. And as we learned, the surgery is really only the beginning. It's not a shortcut. It's not losing weight through cheating. Bariatric surgery only addresses one of those six factors Longtime listeners of the Foodcast know impact our health and our weight genes, physiology, physical activity, nutrition, physical environment, and mindset. The surgery totally rewires physiology. Physical activity, better nutrition, and mindset is what makes the surgery succeed. And as I continuously declare when I speak in public that mindfulness is the key, you heard in Sharon's own words the important role mindfulness has in her journey to better health. She made full use of the resources available to her to support her need to exercise, eat right, and adjust her mindset. Lack of that big picture and thinking the surgery is all that's necessary is why as fraught with complications as the surgery can be, almost 10% of the morbidly obese and almost half of the ultra obese who undergo bariatric surgery gain all their weight back and end up with a truly effed up digestive system to boot. This is a choice that isn't lazy, cheating. It's hard work and brave. Furthermore, it's selfless. In the U.S. alone, economists estimate that complications due to obesity cost us over $190 billion a year. And no matter what you think of the American healthcare system today or in the future, you absolutely will have to foot some of this bill. People who struggle with weight and take the steps to improve their situation are heroes. Those that succeed, succeed against all odds. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Foodcast. If you like what you hear, please post a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, and share the love with your buds. Also, reach out to Sharon at waytothink.com. That's weightothin dot com. And tell her what you think. Finally, If you're still a mindfulness skeptic and you find yourself in the Chester, New Jersey area on June 6, 2017, National Applesauce Cake Day, I'll be doing my famous KarmaSense Mindful Eating presentation at Dean's Natural Food Market in Chester. Come see what one fan literally called a combination of George Clooney, Paul Krugman, and Robbie Benson. By that, I can only assume that fan means I have Robbie Benson's brains, Paul Krugman's looks, and George Clooney's, I don't know. Singing voice? In the meantime, we'll bring this episode to a close. And since I managed to get through an entire episode dealing with the subject of obesity without once mentioning the word diabetes, remember what your old pal Wilfred Brimley always says.
1: Diabetes. Diabetes.